Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers to help us, as Dr. Shaw said last week, become better educated patients so we can receive better care. Now, if you'd like to receive a weekly email about the past and upcoming interviews, you can subscribe to our Inpatient Minute newsletter on the homepage of inpatient.org. I'd also like to suggest that you join one or many of the new Facebook groups that we've created by Myeloma Subtype. If you don't know your disease biology, um, today you can find out. Just call your doctor or the research nurse or your coordinator and ask those basic questions and then join the groups where we will be posting information about certain subtypes when we come across it. And one last suggestion, don't be afraid to ask questions. If you'd like to do this, at the end of the call, we'll have caller questions and you can dial 347-637-2631 and press one on your keypad. So today we are very privileged to have with us Dr. Nupur Raji of Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and the Raji Lab, who has been researching multiple myeloma for many years and studying how the bone marrow environment affects the growth of myeloma cells. So Dr. Raji, thank you so much for joining us. We're very pleased to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. It's a real pleasure to be here this morning. Well, let me give a little bit of background about you before we get started. Um, Dr. Nupur Raji is a physician scientist with a focus on the development of innovative therapies for multiple myeloma. As the director of the Center for Multiple Myeloma at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Dr. Raji leads a dedicated clinical team engaged in investigator-initiated multi-center national and international clinical trials, all aimed at developing new promising therapies for this disease. She also leads the translational efforts at Massachusetts General with her laboratory's efforts focused on identifying cellular signaling pathways that contribute to the survival and proliferation of myeloma cells in the bone marrow environment. Dr. Raji received her medical degree from BJ Medical College, Pune University in India, trained in internal medicine at Massachusetts General, and completed a fellowship in hematology and medical oncology in the joint MassGen Brigham Brigham and Women's Dana-Farber program. She's an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the first incumbent of the Rita M. Kelly Chair in Oncology at Mass General. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the Multiple Myeloma Senior Research Award, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Clinical Scholar Award, and the Claflin Distinguished Scholar Award. So we are very privileged to have you with us. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's, like I said, this is my pleasure to be here today. And, you know, um, it's been an exciting time for us in myeloma. And over the last several years, we've made a lot of headways. And I think uh, uh, what's been really uh, gratifying is the fact that what's gone on in the lab has actually impacted patients and helped improve quality of life with patients. So it's been really reassuring from that standpoint. Well, it's exciting to see the progress that's being made as a patient. <laughs> it's great. Sure. No, absolutely. Now, let me, let's me let first start with some, just some basics. And I know because these are patients listening, you might have to dumb it down for us. But in the bone marrow environment, if you take myeloma cells out and put them in a Petri dish, they 
die. So the bone marrow environment is doing something to keep them alive. Can you explain the bone marrow environment itself and why it's important in myeloma? Sure, absolutely, Jenny. And, you know, part of what we focus on in my lab is trying to understand this interaction of the bone marrow microenvironment and myeloma cells. As uh, you know, and as most of your listeners probably know, uh, myeloma is a bone marrow-related cancer, and it starts out in the bone marrow and likes to stay in the bone marrow with your myeloma cells multiplying in the bone marrow. And obviously, there's an interaction between these myeloma cells and the surrounding uh, cells, which we refer to as the bone marrow microenvironment. Now, in the old days, which was, say, seven, eight years back, you know, we were not smart enough and we looked at all of those cells as a single component and called them bone marrow stromal cells. Um, What's happened, I believe, in the last three and four years is we've been able to dissect out this so-called bone marrow microenvironment so that we know that there are different types of cells which live there. You have so the so-called um, the vascular compartment, which are the angiogenic cells. You have a small amount of the um, uh, stromal compartment. Then you have certain immune cells. And what my lab mainly focuses on is looking at the bone compartment. And if you think about the bone compartment, generally you have kind of two cell types there. You have a cell called the osteoclast, which is typically involved in bone destruction. And then you have another cell type called the osteoblast, which is a cell type which causes or helps with laying down new bone. Um, Now, typically with multiple myeloma, as you know, Jenny, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know as well, um, you know, one of the most important features uh, or clinical problems in myeloma is the fact that a lot of myeloma patients actually will present with bone disease or during the course of your lifetimes, you will end up with bony problems along the way. And a lot of the reasons for that bony problems is the fact that the so-called osteoclasts or the bone-destroying cells tend to work over time in myeloma. And the osteoblasts, the so-called bone-forming cells, tend not to either exist or are inhibited by some of the factors which are either produced by the tumor cell or by some of the surrounding so-called bone marrow microenvironmental piece. So over the last five, six, seven years, what um, my lab has been trying to do is dissect out these interactions, trying to figure out what are the proteins which either promote the growth of these tumor cells or what are the features which block the effect on the osteoblast, which then doesn't allow bone healing in myeloma. And it's been interesting because we've been able to find certain cytokines, certain proteins in this interaction. Along the way, you know, other researchers have also looked at some of the other compartments I talked about, for example, the immune cells and so on and so forth. So in reality, you know, the reason when you take myeloma cells out of a bone marrow and try and put it in culture, as you first described, um, it doesn't live. 
very well. It doesn't live very well because it's taken out of where it's host. It's taken out of the environment it likes to live in, and you've gotten rid of all of these proteins. Now, if the same cell is taken out and we actually lay it down on, say, some of these accessory cells that are out there, these cells then begin to grow, then suggesting to us that there are proteins involved which are secreted either by the tumor cells or by these accessory cells which help the growth. So again, you know, one thing for sure, we like targeting the myeloma cells. It is something we want to get rid of for sure. But the other piece of it, and I think that's the next step that we're looking into, is we need to make this neighborhood unfriendly. We need to do exactly what's going on in that Petri dish so that we need to make the neighborhood unfriendly so that that myeloma cell cannot survive in that bone marrow microenvironment. And that might not kill the myeloma cells um, or decrease the tumor burden if you already have some, but it sounds like it would prevent additional growth. Is that correct or no? No, absolutely. So there there are different strategies. There's some strategies which would actually prevent further growth. There are other strategies uh, which would um, end up uh, uh, actually causing killing of the cells also. So it depends on what you're targeting. And that's the part we try and tease out in the laboratory and figure out which one it is. Okay, that's great a great way to describe it. So thank you for making it basic for us. We need that. Now, I read some studies about that talked about the bone marrow environment changing over time, and they, the word they used was that it was remodeled. Can you explain what this is and how it happens? Yeah, so, you know... Uh, So the bone itself models and remodels constantly. It's not so much the bone marrow. And that Mm -hmm. normally happens in the normal physiologic state when you're looking at bone disease. Now, this is pertinent to bone disease specifically, Jenny. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about the organ, the bone, um, you know, this is a very dynamic organ. It's an organ which is constantly modeling and remodeling as you go through the process of aging and that may be one of the explanations specifically with us women postmenopausally you know a lot of us will develop osteoporosis and that's because those osteoclasts that I talked about earlier on start working a little bit over time and the osteoblasts which are your bone forming or bone healing cells tend to become lazier as we get older so this constant modeling remodeling continues to happen and those shifts turn towards more thinning of bones as we get older. Now, if you think about myeloma, you know, just look at it as if it's in a very extreme form of osteoporosis. And to the extent where you get this classic lytic disease, which we all are very familiar with, with myeloma, which can lead to, you know, a lot of significant, clinically significant problems. And that happens because, as I've spoken to a little bit earlier, is those osteoclasts become active, working over time, secreting a bunch of cytokines, and those cytokines include things like rank ligand. The newer ones we've looked at are active in A. We've looked at certain others, such as DKK1. So there's a host of those proteins that we've studied in the lab, and the hope is that we be able to target some of these and reverse this process. And while that is going on, the so-called bone healing cells continue to either diminish in numbers or tend to be, even if they exist in certain patients, don't function as well. So this whole process 
tends to be towards complete bone destruction or bone thinning to the extent where we end up getting um, bone uh, problems. The other way of looking at and just taking a step back and step back from bone disease but thinking about myeloma more as a whole, you know, over the last say three and four years now, we have focused a lot on what's going on with the tumor, with the myeloma cell. And we've been fortunate because we have the tools now where we can look at the myeloma cell at the genetic level. For every patient, we can actually fingerprint that tumor cell. And we've seen that, you know, as you go through your journey with myeloma, you know this, Jenny, you know, you do have times when your disease is in remission, then it does come back where you need treatment and so on and so forth. And as you go through this whole process, we've been able to look to see how your myeloma evolves genetically. And that is pertaining to the tumor cell. But more importantly, I think, you know, we can't just focus our attention on the tumor. It's very important to see what the soil is doing as well. And as the tumor is changing, so also is the soil changing. And although we haven't gotten theirs yet, but this is work in progress as we speak, we are really looking at this microenvironment as well at a genetic level to see that as you go through your journey with myeloma, are there more genetic changes within this microenvironment, which is then going to favor the myeloma cell and make it more resistant to some of the treatments that we have um, in uh, clinical trials or in research as we speak. And so when you look at MGUS progressing to smoldering and smoldering progressing to active myeloma, do you see those changes in the bone marrow environment? So we certainly see those changes in the tumor cell, and that's something we refer to as clonal heterogeneity or clonal evolution. It's not heterogeneity, it's clonal evolution. The microenvironment part is something we've still not published, but it's something we are studying as we speak, and certainly, you know, uh, I think we'll have to wait and see what the data looks like. But my guess, if I had to guess, is yes, the microenvironment is going to change because we know that some of the cytokines that we've looked at change between what happens in a patient with MGAS or smoldering myeloma versus active myeloma because some of these cytokines are markedly upregulated when you have active symptomatic myeloma. And is this consistent across various patient types? Um, when you say you're studying the genetics of different patients as it relates to the bone marrow environment, are you finding the same proteins that exist across all patients or just across certain types or certain proteins for certain types or how does that work? So again, that's a really excellent question, Jenny, and I don't think we have the answers to that. And, you know, we do see uh, trends towards increases in uh, um, certain proteins and subsets of people. It's not an all or none phenomenon, which is, again, the reason why one has to try and understand that not everybody's myeloma is the same, right? And whenever right. we talk to you, we always tell you myeloma tends to be a very heterogeneous myeloma, your myeloma is probably not the same as, say, person X, and there are differences, 
we are beginning to understand what those differences are. And the other thing is, so there is heterogeneity within myeloma, and that may be a good reason. You know, the reason why multiple myeloma was initially called, the word multiple was coined because of all the bone lesions that folks have. But another way of looking at multiple myeloma is within myeloma, you have subsets of people with different genetic abnormalities. And you see that even on when you get a bone marrow aspirate and we do the routine fish testing and the genetic testing on your bone marrow aspirates. Not everybody has the same kind of genetic changes, right? And right. that heterogeneity is going to exist and it's going to keep getting compounded as the disease progresses as well. And it would be really neat. And I think that's a part of what we are beginning to do now is, you know, we keep talking about personalizing cancer care and things like that. It's a great thought. It's the... A good idea. I'm not sure we're quite there, but we do have to start fingerprinting tumors. For example, at MGH, you know, if a patient comes and we're getting a bone marrow done, we're routinely doing what we refer to as a snapshot test. And that snapshot test is specific to the tumor cells. We're looking at genetic alterations in that tumor cell. Part of the reason to look at this, Jenny, is to see whether or not you have any specific mutations that can, in fact, be targeted by certain drugs because we have a lot of different drugs in clinical development right now which could, in fact, target that specific um, mutation. And I'll give you one simple example of this. And this not only uh, kind of uh, speaks to myeloma across different disease types but I think what happens is when you look at cancer in general it speaks to different cancer types for example in myeloma when we did the whole genome sequencing of the myeloma genome what was seen and what was striking was in addition to the routine kind of protein synthesis pathway genetic changes the one feature which was noted here was that about four in every 100 people or one in every 25 people had what was known as the BRAF mutation. Now, this BRAF mutation is seen in melanoma patients. Melanoma is that skin cancer. Mm -hmm. And if you look at melanoma patients, 80% of melanoma patients will have the BRAF mutation. When they've seen that in those melanoma patients, they treated the patients with a drug called remerofenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor, and about 80 to 90% of these patients responded for not indefinitely, but at least for a significant duration of time. Now, in myeloma, this mutation is a lot rarer, okay? It's only one out of every 25 people. But unless you look, Jenny, you're not going to find it. And what we are doing here at MGH is we have a clinical trial for these folks who do have that BRAF mutation will go on to um, a study with this drug called Vemerofenib, and there's early evidence to suggest that if you use this oral compound in people, you actually respond to this. So unlike using just lenalidomide, bortezomib, and the rest of what we're used to using for myeloma, being smarter about how we treat your myeloma would also be um, the right approach going forward. Well, I think it's an outstanding approach. I would, I would love that. And do, does the BRAF mutation show up on the FISH test, or do you have to do the genetic test to, do, to find that out? 
Right. So we don't, it doesn't show up on the fish test. What we do is, you know, the fish test looks for your 11, 14, deletion mm-hmm. 13, deletion 17, the ones you're familiar with. This mm-hmm. is while we do that same bone marrow, we take a, a small pull of extra sample. And this is done on, it's a PCR-based technology where we're looking at all of these mutations. And, you know, the interesting thing, Jenny, is technology is getting to be so good right now and the other piece which we are doing out here is um, you know the platform where we had about 200 genes now has increased we can do even more so on that same bone marrow which you would send for fish testing in addition to the fish testing which is kind of standard of care for all our patients we are also adding on this to our patient samples and this is something which is you know uh, right now even if we find mutations a lot of them are not targetable but the way the uh, pharmaceutical or the clinical drug development world is working, the hope is that very soon we may have something where we can be more kind of uh, focused on how to treat some of this. We're not yet doing it. What I would really like to do is what we talked about a little bit earlier is not just look at the tumor cells. Can we look at the microenvironment? We're not quite there. We haven't done that yet, but that would be neat as well. But I think part of it is the patient education about about your disease biology, and we created these new Facebook groups by translocation and some of the gene deletions. And we're finding that very few people, I would say maybe 10% of patients, actually know their disease biology. So if I had a BRCA mutation and I had active myeloma, I would raise my hand for that study. And you can't do that unless you know what mutations that you have. No, I think you uh, you know brought up a really critically important point. It's uh, as I said to you earlier before we went live on this is you know a lot of what's happened with myeloma uh, Jenny is because of patient awareness, patient advocacy. So we do rely on all of you to push the frontiers ahead. Um, I think it's critically important that you understand all of this because in the future it might actually impact your care Uh, besides all of us learning more about this and getting a little bit smarter about it. A lot of times out in the community, you know, if you're being treated for every time the disease comes back because you have a known diagnosis of myeloma, not a lot of people will get that second bone marrow done. I do think it's important to do it if you're able to have access to testing like we do uh, because it might actually impact, uh, you know, it certainly teaches us a whole lot about the biology of the disease, but it also might be able to um, give us some insights into therapies, which ultimately, you know, all of us are working the lab as hard as we are to try and make a difference in terms of treatments for our patients. Well, I think from a patient perspective, if it's another pull during your bone marrow biopsy, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're getting you're getting it done anyway. And when I was tested, um, the fish test did not bring up any translocations, but the gene expression profile found the 1420 translocation for me. So, it's it. I think it's important to go to the deepest level that you can, and the tests are more available at more locations now, and you know, they're available, so I think we should take advantage of it. I have a question. I have another question because sometimes you hear, I've I've heard a few people say that myeloma is sort of, can be metastatic in some sense. Can you explain what that might mean? Yeah. So, (laughs) 
I don't like that terminology very much. You don't? Okay, okay. well, maybe no. it's not accurate. Yeah, uh, you know, when you talk about metastatic disease, you're referring to solid tumors. And when you think about metastatic disease is um, think about breast cancer. Breast cancer kind of stays localized to the breast, Jenny. And then when it goes outside the breast, like the lymph nodes or like the bone or like wherever else, liver, for example, you call that metastatic because it's gotten out of where you have that cancer to elsewhere. What happens with myeloma is it always starts out, if you do have actual symptomatic multiple myeloma, it is a systemic disease. It's not a localized disease, right? The only mm -hmm. time when you have localized myeloma is we don't call it myeloma, we call it a plasmacytoma. And that plasmacytoma is a collection of myeloma cells which have affected either a bone or some kind of an or, you know, extramedullary site um, and oftentimes it's kind of in the aerodigestive tract, and that is a plasmacytoma. And most times when we think about treating uh, myeloma, so it's begin, beginning of myeloma is systemic disease, where we always talk to you about systemic treatment, and the reason we talk about systemic treatment is it is a systemic disease. And we are, have, you know, from the outset, you have multiple bones involved. Just because you have multiple bones involved, does that suddenly upstage your myeloma? No. There's a lot of people with stage 1 myeloma who have lots of uh, lesions in their bone x-rays and still be a stage 1 myeloma. So that's kind of the difference between calling it true, true metastatic. I think what we can begin to think and talk about is what happens as myeloma evolves. And as myeloma evolves, absolutely uh, tends to become more of an aggressive disease. It becomes a little bit harder for us to control with every new relapse that you have. I think we've been very fortunate because, you know, with every year now, uh, we're almost kind of spoiled. We're still not done enough and can't have, I, I can never say we've done enough until, uh, you know, we can sit down and say, you know, we don't need to worry about myeloma anymore at all. But we do have more and more drugs come becoming available to us. Last year we had pamalidomide, we had carfilzomib getting approved. So those are all good signs. And what happens is our myeloma cells evolve over time and the, there are some researchers who will say that their metastatic potential increases and what to, as people go through their journey or as people relapse, you can start seeing extramedullary disease, right? Plasmacytoma is happening at different places. The way I look at it is your myeloma is becoming more aggressive. It's becoming independent of the microenvironment, and it's just a natural progression of what's going on with your myeloma. I wouldn't necessarily call it metastatic myeloma. That's, you know, not a, not yeah. a word like I like using. Okay. Well, that's great clarification. Thank you. So let me go back to the bone marrow environment and ask how treatment affects it. So, you know, the good news is some of the drugs we have, and this is something we've always done uh, when we've tested in the lab, you know, right from the image, and this was right through my training. I've been working with thalidomide first. Thalidomide never worked in the lab because it's a pro-drug, but when we used lenalidomide and pomalidomide way back in um, 2000, the nice thing about these drugs, and when we do our drug testing, we always uh, test them against the myeloma cell, and then we test them in the context of this bone marrow microenvironment. And we like drugs which work uh, 
when your myeloma cells are in the context of this uh, bone marrow microenvironment because that's truly what's going on in the human body. And we try and recapitulate that in the laboratory. And the drugs which work only on tumor cells then, you know, we would like, we know that need to be combined. So most of the IMIDs, the proteasome inhibitors like the cafilzomib, like the bortezomib, the IMIDs like um, lenalidomide, thalidomide, and now uh, most recently palmalidomide tend to alter the microenvironment as well. Uh, the IMIDs, for example, have a whole bunch of uh, effects on the microenvironmental cells. They, for example, are called immunomodulator drugs for a reason. They help boost up your immunity. They increase what we refer to as natural killer cells. These natural killer cells boost a person's immunity against your myeloma and help keep your myeloma under check. Um, other cells like T regulatory cells are decreased. T regulatory cells are cells which can promote myeloma growth, but by being on an image, this can be suppressed. If you think about the proteasome inhibitors, in addition to them having a great effect on the tumor cell itself, what it does in the bone microenvironment is mainly affects bone. And what I talked about earlier was the fact that the bone healing cells of the osteoblast don't work well in myeloma. These cell, uh, these drugs, in fact will boost up that osteoblastic compartment so they do regulate this bone microenvironment making it less friendly for your um, myeloma cell to survive. So all of these drugs which we have in the clinic right now do a little bit of both. Okay, thank you for making it understandable <laughs> for us. Um, does any change in the bone marrow create ever create drug resistance? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as um, some of these features, the bone marrow uh, environment produces cytokines. The ones we've learned about with myeloma for many, many years now are drugs like interleukin-6, um, IGF-1, uh, which is uh, uh, the insulin growth factor one, then the newer ones which we've described more recently, like the active and Rankel, all of them promote myeloma growth. And with progression, we've seen that these cytokines, which are largely produced by the microenvironmental compartment, actually tend to go up in people. And though these high circulating levels of these cytokines can predispose patients to developing resistance. So when we design trials, you know, one thing, because there are two things. One is because of the genetic heterogeneity of the myeloma in itself, where everybody's myeloma is different, and within a person's myeloma also, not all myeloma cells express all the genetic alterations. But in terms of the microenvironment also, there are certain cytokines which are up or down and so on and so forth. So the goal has been with myeloma for us to be able to combine some of these drugs. And with combinations are the idea being that we could then overcome some of these, the uh, genetic heterogeneity as well as the heterogeneity and these protein expressions within the bone microenvironment. Okay. All right. Well, I have sort of an off question, and maybe this isn't part of the, you talked about three areas in the bone marrow environment. But I had kind of a curious question because I've read about the VEGF, how it's a growth factor, 
in the bone marrow environment. And it, it maybe I'm, I have this wrong, but I think it tells new cells to grow or create new blood vessels. Yeah. And um, I was curious about this because I, I think my disease started during pregnancy. I think when that growth factor is kind of being supported because you're trying to create this new life. And I'm just wondering if you've, if that's related at all to what you study. Right. So, you know, I specifically don't study angiogenesis, but there is data, Jenny, on angiogenesis and uh, myeloma, and there has been some evidence to show that uh, VEGF, increased VEGF levels can actually promote myeloma uh, growth. Uh, uh, you know, there was some, uh, uh, you know, when we first used thalidomide and lenalidomide, they were considered kind of anti-angiogenic drugs. That's how they were first discovered. And the idea was maybe by us giving people thalidomide and lenalidomide, we are um, blocking this pathway. We've not necessarily been able to confirm that uh, completely in the uh, clinical setting. And the data with kind of this uh, VEGF and all does exist, but it's not as strong as with some of the other cytokines that we've seen. So certainly some amount of angiogenesis might play into the development of myeloma, but I don't believe it could be the whole story. Ultimately, it's an interplay of a whole lot of host uh, uh, factors, environmental factors, which might, in fact, contribute to the development and even the progression of the disease. Well, thank you for answering that. It's a little bit off topic, but let's go back to your studies and how and your active trials that you're working on as they relate to your research. Sure. So, you know, we'll start off the way we obviously being at uh, being in Boston, being at MGH, uh, uh, we work closely with Dana-Farber. We have programmatically, we work very, very closely together and we really share quite a lot of trials. We do have a lot of trials which are spearheaded through the MGH and vice versa and we both institutions participate in each other's. I will highlight some of those which are kind of uh, part of uh, uh, what we, we've spearheaded. We have a lot more which are accessible to patients. And I really do think part of the issue being uh, having clinical trials and is making sure that patients are aware and having access to them because a lot of what's happened in myeloma, Jenny, is because of patients, number one, having access to some of these drugs, and number two is uh, patients actually agreeing to participate in our clinical trials. If it hadn't been for that, there's no way that we could have gotten nine drugs approved in the last 10 years. So it's really commendable that people like yourself with what you're doing here today um, help bring about this awareness and then the rest of your listeners who actually participate in these trials and we really, really are uh, grateful for this because we could not have made that progress. You know, we've done kind of simple studies where we've used combinations. In one situation, we've used RVD, which is the lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone combination. It's absolutely been used in people who are younger and kind of transplant-eligible patients. But for some reason, in older patients, at least the community oncologists have not necessarily come on board with using triple combinations. If you think about myeloma, you know, and think about the epidemiology of myeloma, it's 70% of myeloma is above the age of 67 or 70. So 
So you really have to have a treatment which is applicable to that vast majority of patients. And part of us doing this RVD light protocol, so to say, is just to teach the community that, you know, even in the older patients, we want to see the same kinds of responses as in younger patients, but they, we do need to adjust the doses of these medications so that our patients can tolerate them better and still get the benefits of new drugs. It doesn't matter if you're 84, you should still be have access to these drugs. They would need to be modified in how we give them. So that's a very straightforward trial that we are doing. We've done, um, you know, quite a few patients already. We have a few more slots there. But that's an idea where we hope that even the older patient is just going to do just as well as the younger patient. That's kind of the standard of care approach. In terms of treatment for myeloma, we have a whole bunch of uh, um, different combinations that we are investigating, um, one of them being with uh, uh, the HDAC class of drugs. And in this case, we are using an oral one called ACY1215. We've again studied this in the laboratory and now have moved it to the clinic where we are combining it with either bortezomib or with lenalidomide or with pomalidomide. And what we've seen is that it's extremely well tolerated. Patients have no problems being on it. And more importantly, we're seeing fantastic responses with it. So that to me seems like a very promising target we have another target, again, we, this is a bromo domain inhibitor uh, like JQ1, which was published a couple of years back. Now, these bromo domain inhibitors target what's called CMIC. It's a protein in your myeloma cells, um, which can make the myeloma grow. Uh, and by targeting this, we are just on the verge of beginning this trial uh, with this bromo domain inhibitor called CPT001, I believe. Um, I may have maybe off on the numbers because I'd never remember the numbers of these drugs. Um, um, so that's to do with kind of treatment for your myeloma. We have a whole bunch of others. We've used CDK inhibitors. We've used mTOR inhibitors, and they've all had different uh, uh, impact on myeloma. Most of them have been used in combination. But as, as I was talking to you earlier, you know, I am certainly interested in the bone marrow uh, environment, and in addition to what we do to the tumor, one of our goals, uh, both in the laboratory and in the clinic, is to really modify the bone marrow microenvironment or to remodulate that bone marrow microenvironment so that we make it unfriendly to myeloma. And by doing so, you know, whatever cr uh, we've done in trying to make myeloma a chronic disease, you know, our hope would be that we would create an environment so that those myeloma cells can never go back into that uh, microenvironment and live there. So we do have certain drugs that we are using to target the bone compartment specifically. We have uh, a VEGF uh, ear, uh, hepatocyte growth factor inhibitor, that's XL184. We have another inhibitor called ACE011 against a cytokine called Activin A, and we're also studying another antibody called DKN01, and this is against the cytokine called DKK1. And the hope with some of these is that, you know, the lytic lesions which you see with myeloma right now, Jenny, our hope would be, we've always told you when we treat you, you know, your myeloma is going to get better, but your x-rays are probably going to keep looking the same. And we keep you on drugs like bisphosphonates, so you uh, stay on zoledronic acid or zometa and iridia 
for pretty much uh, uh, your entire course of your treatment. Now, some of these drugs which I just mentioned, um, our goal is to see whether or not you get healing of those lesions also. And we're doing these studies as we speak. We're doing interesting imaging studies with these clinical trials. So you get PET scans, you get FDG uh, fluoride bone scans to see whether or not us treating this microenvironment, in fact, is going to impact um, what happens to the outcome of myeloma. So these are smaller studies, but I'm very uh, excited about this because this is the first time that we're using kind of bone anabolics um, in this uh, setting. And even in the bone world, you know, we've obviously used galadronic acid and pomidronate for many, many years now, and denosumab, which is a much easier drug which can be given under the skin um, for reasons which we presented at ASCO last year, is not yet approved for the treatment of myeloma. It's been approved for breast cancer. It's been approved for prostate cancer. And the reason it wasn't approved for uh, myeloma was that there was a slight hint towards an increased mortality, despite the fact that the bone disease was well controlled. So, and we went back and looked as to why that was happening and whether we should just forget about the drug. And what we were struck by was the fact that really patients who got of zoledronic acid versus denosumab were quite different in terms of their risk factors and to try and get rid of that and because this can be a very useful drug specifically in people with myeloma who have kidney problems as well because as you know one can really not quite safely give some of the bisphosphonates in that patient population so we are doing a study where we are comparing zoledronic acid with um, denosumab or exgeva and we'll see if that pans out. I'm pretty sure as far as the bone piece of things is concerned it's going to look the same or maybe better uh, but if we can have a subcutaneous shot instead of you going in for a, an IV infusion every uh, month or every couple months I think that'll be uh, so much better for your quality of life as well. So those are kind of some of the clinical trials that we have uh, but I'd be happy if you have questions on any other because I am, you know, working in this field, I am familiar with others around. I'd be happy to talk about them, Jenny. Well, let's go back to the ACY1215 because that's a HDAC inhibitor and that is part of the cell signaling pathway, correct? Correct. That's affecting. Can you explain how that, how that works to affect sure. those uh, proteins? Yeah. Uh, sure. So, you know, the way to think about this, uh, Jenny, this is an epigenetic regulator, but part of the reason why we first wanted to use ACY1215 is um, simple. It's an HDAC inhibitor. If you think about what uh, drugs like um, bortezomib or even carfilzomib does to myeloma, these are proteasome inhibitors, so they block your protein synthesis pathway and by doing so, they kill the myeloma cell. But the myeloma cell tries to outsmart that, right? And one of the uh -huh. resistance mechanisms there is what it creates is uh, a different pathway, which is the agrosome pathway. It creates agrosomes, which is a different pathway, and then the cells tend to survive through that. Now, what happens with the agrosomes? The agrosomes are regulated by these HDACs, these enzymes. And a very specific enzyme there is called HDAC6. And what we are using here is ACY1215 is more kind of selective towards HDAC6, which is a class 2B 
HDAC inhibitor. And by doing so, uh, most of our ACY studies are in combination. Right now we have it in combination with bortezomib, for example. And what it's doing out there is bortezomib is blocking that proteasome pathway. The HDAC6 inhibitor is blocking your agrosomal pathway, so it's not allowing for bortezomib resistance to develop. And together, they're doing a better job at getting rid of your myeloma cells. We are also okay. combining it with IMIDS, and in addition to it acting on, say, the agrosomal pathway, because it's an epigenetic regulator, it actually affects the expression of certain proteins. And one that we've seen in myeloma is it affects the protein called CMEC. And CMIC, we all know, is actually, you know, very important in multiple myeloma pathogenesis. Most people will have high CMIC levels, and those high CMIC levels predispose to more myeloma uh, growth. And using drugs like ACY 1215, we can block that pathway. So our understanding of the biology allows us then to combine these drugs with certain other drugs with the hope that they're going to work synergistically in people and you're going to see better responses as opposed to using, you know, the IMID or the prorisome inhibitor by itself. And does everybody have the CMIC? Um, Most people will. These, these are very generalizable. These are unlike what I talked about earlier on where you have very specific mutations. So the majority of patients, so combinations such as using an HDAC inhibitor with, say, a prorisome inhibitor or an image should be applicable to patients in general because here we're not drilling down on kind of the genetic mutations which your cancer is dependent on. Mm-hmm. And, and you're beyond the point just using an HDAC inhibitor alone. Now you're trying to combine it with lenalidomide index in one and Velcade index maybe in another. Yeah, so I don't think HDAC inhibitors should be used as single agents at all because as single agents, they're not going to do a whole lot. You know, if you understand the complexity of the tumor and then the microenvironment, if you're just blocking one single signaling pathway, your um, uh, tumor cell is going to try and outsmart it very quickly. So as a single agent, we're going to see very little effect, and that's why a lot of the clinical trials which we have going forward are generally clinical trials where we use combination strategies. Mm-hmm. I also saw that, um, well, for, next, I guess, could you further explain the zoledronic acid and what it does and how it works? Sure. Um, Zoledronic acid, you know, has been around for years now. Um, We've been using it for more than, uh, I want to say, 15, 20 years now. Pomidronate started off. But what zoledronic acid does is, you know, the osteoclast that I talked about earlier on, these are the cells which help bone destruction. Zoledronic acid kills those cells. So by killing those cells, it's going to prevent further bone problems. And it's also indirectly going to affect your myeloma growth because those osteoclasts feed myeloma cells. So it blocks osteoclasts, directly has nothing to do with myeloma cells, but by blocking my osteoclasts, it will inhibit myeloma. But more importantly, it actually treats bone disease. What it does not do, Jenny, is the other part which we are beginning to look at is the osteoblast compartment. It has no impact on that. Um, so it would be nice to have drugs like zoledronic acid and denosumab, which both of which block the osteoclast. But simultaneously, if we can have something which is going to increase um, the uh, function of those osteoblasts 
or the bone healing cells, then you're going to get those, the bone marrow microenvironment modulated to a point where your myeloma cells are not going to be able to live in that environment. Well, it's like a two-pronged approach where one's, mm-hmm. up, one's going crazy and one's not working, and now you have two different targets for both sides. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, you got it. Sounds it. like. Well, I, I want to leave some time for caller questions. So let me ask you just a final question. You talked about patients being in clinical trials. What could you accomplish if we doubled the number of patients in clinical trials? Because right now that number is pretty small. Yeah, no. Like I said earlier on, where we are uh, today is because of patients participating in these trials. We've been fortunate to be able to do trials that are fast. Jenny, but if you double that number, we'd have a lot more drugs approved, and that's going to be a benefit to everybody. Um, so, you know, I cannot underscore the importance of, uh, you know, I think one piece of education for patients is when they think about clinical trials, they're afraid. They think they have no options left, and that's when they should be looking at clinical trials. I would argue that, you know, again, myeloma is where it is because of clinical trials. Again, if you see my practice, Jenny, a lot of times I will tell my patients, most of it, as I said to you, are drugs we are using in combination. So I would be using, for example, that Velcade in any case. And if you can have access to a new drug while you're using Velcade, which would be the treatment for you at that point in time, nothing wrong with that if you're able to come to your clinic visit and so on and so forth. So I cannot underscore the importance of clinical trials because I think we're going to be able to get a lot more done much, much, much faster. The other thing is don't wait for clinical trials until there are no options left because doing a clinical trial at that point in time is really not helpful. I think you should be doing clinical trials when you're actually feeling well, when you can access them. And then, you know, you've probably gotten some of these trials at the time when you would not have been able to get them, and now they are approved and available to all, but that certainly may have changed the natural history of your disease as well. The last thing I will say with clinical trials is, you know, as you just heard me speak, in the myeloma community, I will tell you that we are very rigorous about the preclinical development of some of these drugs, and we do not bring them to clinic unless we really have a strong rationale strong preclinical evidence to take it forward clinically, and that's why when we offer you these clinical trials, we do think that they are really, really going to work quite well in people. So, you know, I would absolutely encourage people to participate in trials. So you're already seeing benefit, and, and it may be an opportunity for someone to have early access to a new therapy that might work better than standard of care. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we would like to open it up for caller questions. Um, So if you have questions about Dr. Raji's research, you can call 347-637-2631, and once you're on the call, press 1 on your keypad. So caller at 557-6827. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, Dr. Raji. I just have a question for you. Uh, Are there other blood cancers like leukemia where this new bone marrow drugs are working well? 
again, the, that's a good, good, good question. A um, little bit. So it depends on what the uh, blood uh, cancer is, and you know, in certain lymphomas, for example, certainly some of these drugs, and we share a lot of what's working in myeloma tends to work in the lymphomas as well. For example, drugs like lenalidomide which has effects on the tumor cell as well as microenvironment, we are seeing working quite well in certain subsets of lymphomas. So yes, in certain types of cancers, yes. Um, you know, in others where the, it's more of an acute leukemia-like picture, it's less likely to be the case because that's a very different disease and that's where chemotherapy tends to be more effective. Okay, great. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the question and for your answer. Okay, caller at two zero four six nine five six. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Hi. Just a general observation on clinical trials. I wonder if, um, I guess, not for lack of a better term, selling the idea of the importance of participating in a clinical trial should also rest with the treating doctor because I think oftentimes we patients aren't really um, well-versed on the effects and the importance of clinical trials, and the physicians should be. And yet, again, just a general observation, when I was first diagnosed, no one ever even talked to me about clinical trials. And, you know, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. You know, you bring about such an important point, and I could not agree with you more. And the same thing which I talked about uh, in terms of a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, hesitancy to be on a clinical trial because a clinical trial is almost viewed as if it's uh, um, something which is uh, uh, experimental and people don't want to do it. A lot of physicians share that same uh, feeling, and I do agree with you 100%. We, as clinicians, need just as much education and uh, hope that, you know, um, more of our clinical community will also be able to um, provide patients with access. The one thing I will say, though, you know, uh, when you um, are seen by a practice which does not have the same volume of uh, kind of, you know, myeloma uh, patients, remember myeloma is not that common a disease, right? The lung cancers and the breast cancers are a lot more common than multiple myeloma. We are in a minority. We are 20,000 patients diagnosed on a yearly basis. So remember some of those treating oncologists have seen maybe two myelomas in the whole year and in their busy practice do not have time to think about it. So one thing I usually will urge or most of my patients at least or most patients when I give kind of these patient talks is, you know, seek out a program which is close to you which focuses on myeloma. It doesn't mean you have to get treatment there, but stay in touch with that group ever so often so you are made aware of what's new, what's available, and, you know, most treating oncologists, we like care to be local, but most treating oncologists appreciate that relationship as well, specifically if they're not completely up to speed with the latest and greatest of what's going on in the myeloma world. And, you know, it's physically impossible for everybody to keep up. So I think you're absolutely 100% on uh, track here. We need to have education on both ends of the spectrum. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. We've 
to try to address that, I we wanted to create a myeloma specialist directory that um, we've sent you over an invitation for. We hope you'll participate in, Dr. Reggie. And, and that is a myeloma specialist directory that has a little bit more information than a name and a phone number and a face so that patients can find myeloma specialists because as a patient, I think it's absolutely critical that you have a myeloma specialist working on your care, even if you get treated by a local oncologist in a big portion of your care, I think it's still very important. And actually, I just flew to go see my specialist um, and got back yesterday because I think it's important enough to travel for. I'd be very happy to be part of your uh, (laughs) group of experts, and I couldn't agree with you more, Jenny. Okay, we have one final caller at 400-3656. Okay, Dr. Raji, thank you for your time this morning. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, my question is, what tests do I need to get to tell if these cell-signaling drugs will work for me? So, again, a good question. I don't think you specifically need a test for some of those which I've talked about because a lot of the signaling pieces are true to all myeloma in general. Um, Mm -hmm. um, So I don't think we have any specific tests where we look. For example, when we use CDK inhibitors, you know, the cyclin Ds are overexpressed in the majority of myeloma patients and we don't go around looking. I think more importantly, if there is... Uh, what we are tending to do now is if we're doing more of like the BRAF inhibitor story, for example, we are looking at people who have, say, the BRAF mutation. We're also looking at other mutations such as the NRAS and the KRAS mutations. These tend to be commoner, and we are just in the process of right now, we don't have it uh, just as yet, but where we would be combining certain MEK inhibitors in combination with BRAF inhibitors and hope that we see an inhibition so just for the self-signaling drugs, so to speak, we, there's no specific test, but for mutational drugs which can target certain mutational aberrations with the myeloma, I think doing things like the platform we have is the snapshot platform, you know, the one which is uh, uh, Foundation Medicine has their own platforms. So there's lots of platforms which are available uh, around the country which can be accessed, and I would urge uh, most people to do that. If you find that you have a mutation, you know, there's the clinical trials um, website, and I believe, Jenny, you have something where you uh, have, uh, am I correct in assuming you have compiled trials, etc., or at least you can go to places to look to see whether there's a, there's a clinical trial which could be uh, targeting your specific mutation. Um, I would at least look at those resources and see whether you should be hooked up with somebody who can, who has those trials available. Yeah, and you find those tests through that genetic expression profile typically, right? And yep. Correct. Yeah, correct. That's the extra test that you need to do. And how many patients on the BRAF study that you're running, how many patients are you looking for? So we have, it's just a small cohort. We're looking at 10, and I believe we already have four people, so there's still room for more. Um, but, yeah, that's, that, that's kind of the most designer-specific kind of a treatment. And soon to start, uh, we're going to do a combination study where we're going to look at the BRAF inhibitor with the MEK inhibitor. And in that patient population, we're not just going to look at BRAF uh, mutated patients because that's a rare 
um, uh, mutation, but we're going to look at you know the other mutations which I talked about, the NRAS and the KRAS mutation, which we believe signal through the MAP kinase MEK pathway, and using a MEK inhibitor in that situation is going to be helpful for these people. Okay, All right, great. thank you for clarifying that, Dr. Raji. You're very welcome. Well, we are very grateful that you've joined us and, and help us. Maybe our Facebook groups should be by mutation and not by translocation. <laughs> I don't know. If you're trying to recruit for, if you're trying to find patients for specific um, genes, then that might be another another way of doing this. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't, shouldn't forget translocations because they've taught us a lot, but this is just one more step where you know, because of the availability of technology, we're going to be able to do this. So I wouldn't say that you ever, uh, you know, do this instead of that. I do think you have to do the standard of care testing, Jenny, and then if mm -hmm. you can add on at no further, um, you know, and, and the other thing I will tell you is uh, insurance companies are paying for it, so that's not, it's not an added burden financially either. And the more information, like you said at the beginning of your um, uh, show, uh, the better because you you know even if it's not applicable today our hope is maybe a year down the line or two years down the line we'll have more information on the biology of things where we it would become then applicable well that's what I, I completely agree and I think if you're prepared and you're ready and you know more about yourself then you can um, pick and choose I guess at a deeper level things that might be more appropriate to you personally and and just be prepared and ready. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Raji, today. And it's been a very helpful and a very informative and a very patient-friendly <laughs> description of how these, this bone marrow environment works. And we wish you the very best in continuing your wonderful and great work. Thank you, Jenny. And likewise, I wish you the very best as well. Thanks so much for okay. having me on. Well, thank you for joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma on Mpatient Radio. Join us next week for our next interview as we learn more about how we can help drive to a cure for myeloma. 